that this would bring. Two of the elders, two who happened to have been most opposed to calling a woman to their pulpit, were flummoxed when it came time for the annual fishing trip with the pastor. What should they do? Should they invite her? Well, they figured they had to, and much to their chagrin, she accepted. The trip arrived, and they hopped in the boat, and they headed out. But when they had gotten a ways from the shore, they realized that they had uh, forgotten their bait. You can't really fish without bait. So the, the pastor jumps up. She said that she would get it. And she stepped out of the boat and walked across the water to shore. I told everyone all along this whole thing was a mistake, this calling a woman, said one of the elders. She can't even swim. I know that you guys are all laughing because pastor jokes like dad jokes are hilarious. Well, I don't know if you the same in your profession, but in a typical pastoral job description, it sometimes feels like the congregation does expect the minister to uh, walk on water. The job description is just about impossible. And as I've looked at uh, job descriptions in various vocations, it seems to be true across different professions that they expect the candidate to walk on water, which we all know is Im impossible. And that's perhaps why many commentators over the years have tried to explain the story away as some sort of illusion. Perhaps they were nearer to the shore than they realize. Perhaps there was a, a hidden sandbar. Though I understand why we would have a problem as modern people with this text, excising the miraculous from the text robs the passage of its power and its magic and its meaning. Though I have my share of doubts and things that I struggle to believe wholeheartedly, the question of whether Jesus could or did walk on water, or for that matter, whether he could or did heal someone from leprosy or raise someone from the dead, these don't rank very high on my list of doubts. And I think it's because they presuppose a more fundamental question or a collection of them. And it's how we answer those questions that really predetermines our openness to believing Jesus walking on water and the like. Did this really happen begs the question of who is Jesus? To begin with, and perhaps even further back, it begs the question of, is there a God and what is he like? If there is a, a personal creator God, then why should it boggle the mind that he could choose to reveal himself in this way? If there is a God who can create the world out of nothing, then what is calming storms and walking on water to him? Maybe this is why the disciples respond to this event, not with applause or thanksgiving. They all saw him, Mark tells us, and were terrified. This wasn't just another parlor trick for them, that they wanted Jesus to teach them. But they were terrified because they knew enough to know that what they were seeing changed everything.
and they weren't ready for that. See, they were still stuck on the larger, more foundational question that this miracle pointed to or sought to answer. And that question is, who is Jesus? Jesus knows this, of course, and this is why he chastises them for not having understood about the loaves. The loaves, what is what does that thing have to do with this thing? What Jesus seems to be saying here is, you've seen this all before. You saw it just for our perspective or from our perspective in the last passage that we read. And yet you still don't believe. The struggle, the challenge, the problem for the disciples is that they weren't able to see the miracle behind the miracle that they hadn't fully wrestled with and fully acclimated to the miracle behind the miracle. Walking on water is one thing. It could be a ghost, an apparition. But the incarnation, Jesus as Messiah, this is an entirely different order of things to believe. It's the miracle behind the miracle, and it's what the disciples are stumbling over. Jesus is taking something of breathtaking power, something so astonishing that is walking on water in the middle of a storm that if we were to see it, it would buckle our knees. And he's putting that in the background behind an even more impossible miracle that Jesus, the human being, is Messiah, is God's Son is God in the flesh, come to set the world right. And this is where the disciples are stuck. Who is this? How do we explain him? Or maybe, how do we explain him away? His family explains him away with a diagnosis of insanity. The religious leaders explain him away by saying he is possessed by a demon. The state leaders despiritualize him. He is merely a threat to their power. And the disciples, well, they're not entirely sure. Or maybe they are sure, but they don't want it to be true. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the narrative. They're following Jesus around, after all. They're putting their lives in danger on his behalf. They've left jobs and family to sail to what Mark calls the other side, that is, into Gentile territory. Why would they do these things if they weren't 100% sure that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be? But that's not the primary tension for Mark here, that is the disciples being 100% certain. It's not that Jesus hasn't given, given them enough evidence. It's that they're still resistant to where this evidence points. The nature of the Christian faith, friends, isn't believing incontrovertible evidence. It is, in fact, possible, it is, in fact, necessary to follow Jesus and serve Jesus without 100% certainty. 
The challenge of Christianity most basically is opening our minds, opening our hearts, and opening our lives to Jesus as he reveals himself. It's following the truth wherever it leads, even if where it leads undermines some of our most cherished presumptions about life. And this is what the disciples are wrestling with because they had very sacred, very cherished presumptions about what the Messiah would do and who he would be and what he would be like when he came. This is the more foundational challenge that all of these miracles, all of the miracles in the world can't alter if we are unwilling to see, if we are unwilling to believe, if we are unwilling to let the truth in and let it change us. Facts, you see, don't change a closed mind. We see this today. The truth doesn't penetrate a hardened heart. And that is actually by design because God, you see, is the author of non-coercive love. They had not understood about the loaves, Mark says, because their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the miracle of the loaves or the miracle of the walking on water because they did not believe, because they had hardened their hearts against where those, what those miracles pointed to. They witnessed these miracles, but they were still in some way resistant to their meaning. And we'll see that resistance continue. It's not solved here in chapter 6. Now, it should come as no surprise, especially as we look <clears throat> at so much of modern Christianity, perhaps our own, that it's possible to be very near to Jesus and yet miss the truth. It's possible to be inside the boundaries of the church and not really get the gospel at all. The disciples with, have been with Jesus for some time now, and they're still asking, who is this Jesus? In a sense, in this episode, it's not the storm that's the biggest problem, but it's the identity of Jesus. When he comes to rescue them, they're still terrified. And in some way, we never get past this question of who is Jesus. You see, it's not just an apologetic question, but it's a discipleship question. It's the question, friends, that confronts the person who walks into the church for the very first time, as well as the question for the theologically astute church leaders among us who've been thinking about these things for decades. Who is this Jesus? We never move past that question. We always are centered upon that question and answering it in every layer of our lives. Asking the question, however, is of course not the same thing as being open to the answer. They had hardened their heart, Jesus says. So we shouldn't assume that we're open to the answer because it's an answer that will change everything. The disciples 
were straining at the oars. They were struggling to stay alive. And suddenly this figure walks up. Who is this walking up? Like he owns the place. Is it a ghost, an apparition? By the way, there was a local rumor that's been uncovered with historical research that the last thing that a boatman saw before drowning in the Sea of Galilee was a ghost on the water. So this question, is this a ghost, has context, and the context is not good. But Jesus says, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. It is I. Our English translation sort of mutes what Jesus is saying here, how he is assertively answering the question of who is this Jesus. It is I in the Greek is ego emi, which is used in Jesus' day to translate the Old Testament phrase, I am. I am he. I am is climbing in the boat with these frightened disciples. This is how God introduced himself countless times in the Old Testament to the unbelieving Pharaoh as well as to the faithful follower Moses at the burning bush where God tells him, take off your shoes, Moses, for where you are standing is holy ground. Because where I am is, is holy. And apparently this boat, this raging sea, this is holy ground. N.T. Wright says something that I quoted in the bulletin reflecting on this. And he says that we see something more mysterious by far, a dimension of our world which is normally hidden, which had indeed died, but which Jesus brings to new life. Mark is offering Jesus to our startled imagination as the world's rightful king, long exiled, now returning. There is so much here that we can only skim the surface. We've been talking about it through our study of Mark and will continue. But I think we should ask as we conclude, how does this rightful king how does this sovereign over wind and wave use his power? He uses his power. I am uses his power by walking out on the lake towards trembling people and climbing into the boat with them and telling them, take courage. Do not be afraid. This act of kindness is in the face of their hard-heartedness, despite their not getting it over and over and over. None of this interrupts Jesus' love and his concern for them. He kept climbing into their boat. He kept walking toward them. He kept embracing them, even when they were so very disappointing. All of us that are listening this morning all of us are facing the, the same enormous human pressures that come with life during a global pandemic. But all of us are facing this very same predicament in, ver in various ways. 
facing very unique variations of that struggle. And to all of us, Jesus says, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. Who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus, friends, is the answer to what is God like? He is God's yes to humanity. He is the representation of the fact that God wants relationship with you and with I, and that he will walk into a raging storm to tell us, do not be afraid. Jesus is God's answer to the cosmic as well as the very personal questions of, am I alone? Am I forgotten? And is there hope? Jesus, you see, will not only climb into the boat with them, but he will climb up a lonely hill to die, to rescue all of us from our hard-heartedness and to launch a movement of grace, bringing healing into his broken world. Jesus comes as the rightful king and heir to the world. He has all the power at his disposal. And how does he use it? He uses it for healing. He uses it to bring hope. He uses it to say to you and I and to our church, take courage, do not be afraid. I am is with you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would wrestle with this. We we know more already than we are applying. We don't necessarily need more information. We need inspiration. We need to be reminded that when you are present, the ground that we stand on, the houses that we inhabit, the churches that we attend, they are holy ground. And they are alive with the majesty of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would plug into that as a church and as individuals, that we would come to see our identity in that revelation, in the incarnation of the Holy One in Jesus, and that we would find ourselves wrestling with the implications of that at all areas of life and at all areas of our church. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself in power and yet it is a power that comforts. Father, I pray that we would all be comforted as we live in this very challenging time. We pray in your son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.